it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. What a week it's been. We had, uh, of course, Star Wars Day on Wednesday, and uh, yesterday was Cinco de Mayo. But we wrap up the week with uh, some real interesting guests and conversations, as is always the case on Fridays. Coming up during the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with... um, uh, the uh, well, she's a writer and editor um, and National Geographic contributor, at least to uh, Nat Geo Kids, and we're going to talk about shark stuff. In fact, exactly that. Nat Geo Kids has a uh, new book um, called "Can't Get Enough Shark Stuff." Fun facts, awesome info, cool games, silly jokes, and more. And uh, to talk about that, we're going to be joined uh, later on in the show by Kelly Hargrave. In the middle of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk about How to Survive Middle School, which is actually a new series of books written by educators, vetted by curriculum experts. And we're going to talk with uh, Elizabeth Fee, who is the author of How to Survive Middle School, world history this series is on a variety of uh, subjects and and in some ways it's being touted uh, as a way for uh, kids who maybe suffered a little learning loss during the pandemic to uh, play catch up a little bit Uh, anyway we're going to start out today with a conversation i've really been looking forward to if uh, if you're at all like me and love mysteries and true crime stories and and all of that kind of stuff you are fascinated by anything that has the words jack the ripper in it (laughs) and that is certainly the case of uh, a new audio book um, an audible drama about a true story of crime and punishment that haunted new york's gilded age it didn't take place in Whitechapel, and we're going to find out what the connection is with the author journalist luke jared coomer who joins me by phone good morning luke welcome to the show good morning tom thanks so much for having me i appreciate it um luke let's let's talk about this a little bit the the name of the book is takers mad and mm-hmm. that um I, when I look at that title, I, I I just I have so many questions about what what does that mean? Um, but let, I want to talk about the style of book. First of all, it's only available in audio format, right? That's correct. 
it's uh, it was written for Audible, and it's uh, it's styled that way, and it's acted by Christine Bam, who does a fantastic job in narration. It's, it's really remarkable how she takes on the characters. Oh, I'm I'm glad you you got to um, give her credit, and and also she's wonderful. Be, because I was going to ask, because um, it's it's kind of been trending a little bit lately, where the authors are reading their own books, and. I, was going to ask is that something you would want to take on some people do that very well but honestly i could not have done it as well as christine bam who's a, who's an actor uh, and so she's able to bring these characters to life in a way that you know is not my training um you know i'm a i'm a writer by background and a journalist and so my forte is uh, storytelling and, and research uh, but i i leave it up to her uh to bring these characters to life and she did a fantastic job Someone described it recently as a sort of a almost acrobatic in the way that she is able to turn out all these different characters uh, with different accents from the time period, and it's just something. Uh, it, it's interesting, and I've talked to some voiceover artists about the art of doing that, and um, and and it's more of a um, uh, a mindset that they get in for each character it isn't so much trying to imitate different voices and and it's it's brilliant when it's done well as as you point out but let me talk about the uh the style of storytelling you know at first glance this might seem to people like a historic novel but it's really a true crime story isn't it well, it's very closely based on a, a true crime uh, from from the 1890s. Uh, and when when I started writing it as an audible original drama and mystery, uh, th that was my intent to sort of bring to life this story that had real significance at the time period and has relevance today, but had been somewhat forgotten. But then I started researching. It's, it's one of those things where you just start tugging on a string and pretty soon all sorts of stuff comes loose. And so I ended up finding new evidence in this real-life case. Uh, I, I went to the law library, and I, I digitized, digitized uh, these, these old trial transcripts that were buried on microfilm, and uh, that's revealed a lot. But then I went up to the New York State Archives in Albany, and I ended up finding this, this trove of, of new evidence, uh, you know, first-hand letters and affidavits and, in some cases, physical evidence uh, that really shaped how I told this story. So it's both. It, it is a drama, um, and I certainly you know, worked with, in the conventions of, of that, that genre. Uh, but then also, behind that, there's a, what I think is a, a really important piece of history that we have uh, some new lights to be shed on now, uh, that I think is important for people to know beyond beyond whatever I wrote or beyond even Taker's Mad. I just think it's it's an interesting time capsule that has relevance for some of the conversations we're having today about immigration and prejudice um, and you know who who is charged um, in crimes and how they're treated in the justice system. There um, there are so many aspects to this story that that are interesting and fascinating. But but first, let's talk about where where do you hide evidence that it's going to stay hidden for a hundred years, or was the evidence hidden in plain sight, and why wasn't it used in the original investigation and subsequent uh, trial? 
Well, the, the original investigation in 1891 was very problematic. Um, just to give you a, a background of the may I give a background of the case a little yeah, bit? So, yeah, please, uh, let's put it in context. So, on the morning of April 24th, 1891, there's a, a woman who was found in a locked room on the top floor of a CD hotel near Manhattan's waterfront. And, Tom, without going into all the gory details, it was a terrible, bloody scene. Uh, her remains were badly cut up, and the next day, the coroner announces that Jack the Ripper had come to New York. Now, this is a city where the likes of Pulitzer, Hearst, and the owners of a half dozen other major daily newspapers are competing savagely for the highest circulations, often using the most sensational headlines to win the day. Tom, you can imagine what they did with this story. It was splashed across every front page. A manhunt that ensued extended to New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Chicago, even other countries. Luke, let me ask you about the timing of that a little bit, because in a lot of the things that I've read about your book, it refers to that as being, you know, the Gilded Age. Um, mm-hmm. Yet, that's, you know, the, the impressions we get from from Jack the Ripper's uh, original stomping grounds in Whitechapel in London mm-hmm. doesn't have that, you know, that, that, um, that tag, if you will. How would it, timing-wise, have been logical um, or, or even remotely credible that, Jack the Ripper could have come over to New York and started up again. Well, the, the time period is pretty close, actually. In, in terms of the, the sort of nomenclature of Gilded Age, you know, in the Gilded Age comes from a Mark Twain book title, um, and so it's it's widely used in America, whereas in in UK uh, they would talk about first Victorian and the Edwardian times. This, so I think perhaps that's some of the reason why we don't think of. Uh, Jack the Ripper is happening during the Gilded Age, but the, the so-called Autumn of Terror uh, was in 1888. That's when there was a string of murders in uh, the East End, in uh, Whitechapel, which is an area of the East End, that uh, had a lot of similarities with parts of New York. Uh, it was, it was immigrant-heavy. It was uh, near a commercial waterfront. Um, it uh, had a lot of uh, new immigrants, and so uh, there was a lot of fear of new immigration, and there was a lot of class disparity, and there was a lot of people living in really dire conditions. And if you've ever seen uh, perhaps some of the photography of Jacob Rees um, and the lower parts of Manhattan um, in America at the time, uh, it, was, it was really similar. And so this, this, these string of murders happens in London in 1888, and it really becomes this worldwide phenomenon because of a number of factors. Uh, so, for example, uh, the, the telegraph had really come into its own, uh, and there was new cheap methods of printing. So there's the so-called penny presses that uh, allowed a, a, wide, a wider swath of the public to have access to newspapers, and there was rising literacy rates. And so for the first time, uh, there was the ingredients that really allowed this news story to grow into something much bigger. Uh, because of that telegraph and the sort of... Uh, sort of economic invention of, of syndicated news, this is a story that was not only a big deal in London, but it was a big deal in all around the world, in these far-flung places, in South Africa, in, in, in India, in, in Egypt, uh, and very much in, in America. People were glued to this story uh, because these gory details kept trickling out. And, and so and in New York... And, and it would have taken a little time for that story to spread. So the last crime was in 18, what did you say, 88? 
Well, and there's a, a whole study. Of, yeah, please. go ahead. There's a whole study of ripperology, uh, but in general, people agree that the so-called canonical five, that's the term that people use, the canonical five murders occurred in 1888. However, uh, there was a number of other murders in London that continued uh, into you know 1891, all the way up to the case that I'm I'm discussing in Taker's Mad, uh, where the suspicion still fell on whether or not this this uh, person who was responsible for these crimes was continuing to do these terrible things. Uh, and you know a big problem was that no one was ever caught or credibly accused. So it, it the even if we now today look back and say that the the five definitive cases. Uh, ended in 1888, the suspicion and the hysteria and the panic continued for long after. And what I'm trying to say is that that panic wasn't limited to London, and that because of the this other uh, invention of the time, the transatlantic steamer, uh, which really changed how people thought about travel, there was this great fear uh, among the public in New York that Jack the Ripper was going to somehow escape um, from London. And again, indeed, he had not been captured uh, and come and terrorize New York. So uh, there's the seeds of this. And then when this, this sensational murder happened that I'm describing, uh, and the newspapers just ran with it, uh, there was real panic in America, too. I mean, this, this, the public here became hysterical, uh, and that panic only ended when police abruptly charged an Algerian immigrant with the crime, despite many problems with the investigation. And that's the real history that is the basis for Taker's Mad. And it's, um, and I want to talk about the uh, the anti-immigration part of this, um, because that's that's a, a, a key point in your book but but I want to stay just for a minute on um, and and we've got a break coming up in about a minute and a half. Yeah, please. but I want to talk about the um, the new evidence which you um, just just revealed in a public event um, what last month on uh, April 23rd I believe yeah it was, it was actually the anniversary of, of the murder and uh, I, I ended up doing this this talk uh, this presentation uh, that was sponsored by the Cranford Historical Society because there's a tie to Cranford, New Jersey. Um, so to, to go back for a second, Amir Ben Ali was the, the man's name, and he was convicted of murder in 1891. And after a decade at Sing Sing and New York mental asylums, he was freed in 1902 by the governor after this long campaign on his behalf by these concerned New Yorkers who noted the problems and the prejudice in the investigation and court proceedings. And quite significantly, there's also a prominent person who turned in the evidence from the crime from the crime scene that he'd held on to for more than a decade. Yeah, Luke, so I want to early twenty twenty. I want to dig into all that, but as I mentioned, I have a break coming up here in uh, in in just a moment. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? Because this is fascinating stuff. You bet, Tom. That'd be wonderful. Thank you very much. All right. My uh, my guest is uh, Luke Jared Coomer, author of Takers Mad, and we're uh, going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOVLP 92.1 FM in Flint, Our Voices Radio, broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my friend Paul Hearing. And if you're streaming us, we have some messages Hello, as well. Hello, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the uh, author of a new uh, audible drama about a true uh, story of crime and punishment that haunted New York's Gilded Age. The the audio book is called Takers Mad. It's by uh, journalist Luke Jared Coomer, who joins me by phone. Luke, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Not at all. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Um, Luke, just as we were going to break, we, we started bumping up against the arrest and, and subsequent release 10 years later of Amir ben mm-hmm. um, who was, uh, what, a, um, oh, shoot, 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 um, Algerian. That's correct. And was he was he then released by the governor after 10 years in in prison and mental institution by new evidence brought forward by someone that's right there, there was a long campaign but then ultimately uh, someone turned in evidence that they withheld uh, and just to bring you up to date in in 2020 I went up to the archives in New York, New York State Archives in Albany, and there's this rule in New York State that you have to hang on to all the correspondences with the governor. Well, Amir Ben Ali had been applying for clemency for years, and so they had all these archives. And so I got there, and the librarian had hauled out these four big crates of, of files, <laughs> and there's these reams of signed petitions and letters between the lawyers and these really moving handwritten letters from the prisoner detailing the abuses he suffered behind bars and at the asylum um, and show him pleading his innocence and ultimately of course the guy was freed uh, so you know you, you you know how the story ends to a degree and so you really feel for this this person who's stuck behind bars uh, for all this time also though there's a envelope and I open up this envelope, and inside it is this brass word key with a tag 31. And remember I told you at the top that the hotel room that was found with the, with the remains of the, the victim, a woman known as Carrie Brown, uh, it, it was found locked that morning. And it was always assumed that the, the murderer had the, the hotel room key. Because it was locked from the outside. And somehow, Amir Ben Ali was, was convicted, even though this, this key was never found. There was a lot of problems with the, with the, the trial. I, I can get into those. Anyway, though, so finally, in 1901, this person turns in the key to the hotel room. And they managed to do this, and yet somehow avoid charges themselves for withholding evidence. I'll, I'll describe the process, but at some point, you also ask, well, why did this person have this key, and why did they hold on to it for so long while Amir Ben Ali was stuck in behind bars? This, uh, among the things that I, I found there also, uh, there, is, there is a letter from New Jersey's governor, Voorhees, to New York's governor, Odell, saying that this person who turned this key was this upstanding citizen of their state, a personal friend. And that was able to grant these person a turn of this key, this incredible amount of anonymity in the press and in the courts for a long time. And it was really something special how this person used their connections to avoid scrutiny. There's also these affidavits from this person, 
their, their name is known now. It's, it's George Damon, and he has a story. He has a story of how this key came into his possession. But, you know, if you start dissecting it, it really doesn't stand up. It really doesn't stand up, and there's a lot of problems with it. Um, and these are the kinds of things that, one, you know, help shape the, the story I told in Taker's Mad, but also, as I say, I really hope that people start looking into this case um, for all it reveals about problems in our justice system and problems at the time and potentially even problems today uh, about who is who has a, a light shined upon them and who's uh, able to avoid that scrutiny. Well, and not to mention finding out who killed Carrie Brown. And I, and I want to ask you about Good question. Um, what happened to Amir Ben Ali after he was released? Part of the condition of his release is that he was going to be put directly on uh, a ship bound for France and then presumably travel onward to his family who had been waiting for him in Algeria. I mean, he had a bad mental breakdown um, during his incarceration, which is why he was transferred from Sing Sing to a series of asylums. Uh, so that, that was part of the condition of his clemency. And so we've never heard from him again, uh, you know, hopefully he was able to be reunited with his family and uh, live out what had been, presumably, uh, a life with a lot of potential. Uh, meanwhile, though, uh, for George Damon, uh, his life was relatively unaffected because he was able to mostly keep his name out of the press uh, and avoid uh, attention in this case. But again, uh, you start finding new evidence and then you start pulling that little string and then you you realize all these things that should have been studied at the time but weren't because there's an uneven amount of focus on Amir Ben Ali as opposed to George Damon. So, for example, George Damon, he was a, a resident of Cranford, New Jersey. It's this little bedroom community, a beautiful place. It's a little bedroom community, uh, even at the time, of New York, a commuter town. But his business was in Manhattan, and his business also was less than a mile from the murder scene. And his business also was to be a manufacturer of printing presses and a metal foundry for letter type, two blocks from Newspaper Row. And so you start to wonder, well, how was it? that in an era that had Hearst and Pulitzer and the New York World and the New York Journal and the New York Herald Tribune, the New York Tribune, pardon me, uh, that were, were so sensational in, in many ways and what they presented, how was it that this person was able to turn in this key to, in this, this story that had riveted New York, and yet he remained anonymous? He, in fact, he was, he was described by the New York World as a person of mercantile prominence from a neighboring state who is a personal governor of, of a personal friend of New Jersey's governor. That's incredibly generous. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that he spent you know, 30 years as a, a manufacturer of printing presses two blocks from Newspaper Row. I do think it's problematic that he was so close to the, the murder scene, uh, he worked so close to the murder scene, and yet no one ever questioned that. No one ever questioned that and took him apart the way that they took apart Ben Ali. And Ben Ali, if you read uh, the, the trial transcripts and you read the uh, newspaper coverage at the time, 
he was called terrible things. He was called terrible things, uh, and every part of his life was dissected, um, and he uh, was held under a tremendous amount of scrutiny where George Damon avoided that. There's, there's other, other things that are problematic in, in both what's, how Betty Lee was treated and about how George Damon evaded that scrutiny. How, uh, based on what was Ali convicted? I, I mean, you, you, you point to um, anti-immigration uh, sentiment, um, which certainly is a factor, but how could it be pre- uh, paraded through a, a courtroom and, and what evidence was used to convince a judge or jury um, to, to send Ali away for this crime? Well, the, the, I mean, it's hard to even say in 22, but the, the DA, uh, a man named Delancey Nickel, he called Bentley in the courtroom a half-savage. He said that he had uh, a lascivious appetites for, uh, he used the term, uh, again, quote-unquote, unnatural desires for white women. I mean, it, it, in, in this day and age, it's pretty, the racism is, is so clear and so offensive, it's hard to, uh, you know, I don't want to even repeat it, some of the things that were said in a courtroom, in a court of law, uh, about this person. That's why the, the juxtaposition of the way that George Damon was treated compared to how Amir Ben Ali was treated is so problematic. The, the press was even worse. Uh, the New York World referred to Amir Ben Ali as having long talons. They called him a, a long, lank, uh, yellow child of the desert. I mean, it was really terrible stuff. Um, which is why I, I think that it's a, uh, you know, problematic that disparity. Um, in terms of the sort of circumstantial evidence that was used to convict him in the trial, there's a number of things. One, they Amir Ben Ali did occupy the a room in that hotel, room number 33. Terry Brown, the murder victim, was found in room 31. And the police said that there was a blood trail between room 31 and 33. However, the reporters who were on the scene that morning said there was no blood trail. And Jacob Reese, a very famous muckraker at the time, he was also one of the first people on the scene. He said there was no blood trail. This was an era where a crime scene was not secured. And so for days, those, those rooms remained unlocked. The reporters went up there. The police went up there. They let onlookers, you know, just, just casual people interested in this sensational crime go and visit this scene where there was just pools and pools of Terry's blood because, again, it was a, it was a, it was a brutal well, she was a murder. Yeah. And so, of course, after a while, there, there, was, there was a blood trail, but it wasn't there the morning that the body was found. This is, this is one of the many great problems of the case. They, this is also the sort of infancy of forensic science. And so in the court proceedings, the, the prosecution presents these, these sort of highfalutin scientific language about blood analysis. But today, when we look back and read those trials transcripts, we realize that the, the science that was presented at the time doesn't at all stand up. And again, we know that it's false because we know that Amir Ben Ali was not found with this key. The, the key was turned in later. So it, it's really interesting to sort of know how the story ends, but then look back at the, at the, narrative of the trial and to see how it's presented by the prosecution and they won their case they won a murder conviction based on faulty material based on faulty testimony by you know experts based on faulty blood analysis uh, of samples that 
you know, quite luckily were contaminated, in some cases potentially tainted uh, by uh, the people who are seeking conviction, the DA and uh, a man named Tom Burns. He was the chief inspector of police at the time. He was this larger-than-life uh, figure in New York. He's the person that we owe the famous term the third degree, which, you know, today, I guess uh, the closest euphemism is enhanced ter- interrogation because it was just another word for torture. And yet... Amir Ben Ali, after enduring presumably the third degree, degree, did not confess to this crime because we know that he was he was actually innocent. Were there ever any other suspects in the crime? Many. I mean, at, at the time, because of the sensational nature of it, it was it was this dragnet where they just hauled in all sorts of people, uh, and the the press followed <laughs> the along, usual uh, suspects. Yes, and and then some. I mean, it was it was this thing where, in fairness, I think that the police had good reason to try to quell public hysteria uh, because you know it's, it's bad when a city is panicked. But their their means of doing that is to to bring in as many people as possible, and in some cases, I hate to say, but beat the hell out of them uh, and try to get some answers. Uh, and this is one of the things that was interesting for me as a researcher uh, is to look at all the different problems of this 1890s case and realize how many contemporary equivalencies there are in today's justice system. So, for example, one big problem in my mind is that they took advantage, the the police took advantage of the ability to hold material witnesses. That's something that still and sometimes exists today, where you have people who are not even suspected of a crime, who did, are not accused of doing anything wrong, that are held uh, potentially indefinitely uh, in, in you know, a holding. In this case, it was the tombs. Today, it would be a different facility. But the, the, the tombs, uh, which was at some, was sometimes is called a perjury factory uh, by lawyers of the time, you know, it's this, this holding area right by police headquarters where police have access to all these these now suspects that are dragged in as material witnesses uh, who you know, have all the incentive in the world to get their story straight so that the police can build a case and win a conviction and they can finally go home. I mean, there is a lot of problems, and some of these have real contemporary parallels. What are some of the, the, uh, the things that, that you discovered in addition to the, the key and, and the fact that that was uh, turned in 10 years later? Um, but what were some of the things that, that you discovered as new evidence, and what are some of the questions that remain unanswered? I think that breaking down George Damon's affidavit and realizing uh, that the story he told doesn't stand up, that's, that's a big one. Uh, so his story is that a short time before this, this murder occurred, he had a problem on his property in Cranford, New Jersey. And so he went down to the New York waterfront near Castle Garden, and he hired like a day laborer, right? He said he was a, a big burly man, uh, a, a Dane perhaps, or maybe a Swede. And he, he brought this person with him back to Cranford to do this work on his property. Well, one night, this, this man came home very late uh, and in, in a bad state, uh, and then no one wanted to bother him because he was so such in a, in a bad state. He was a big, scary guy. Uh, and then he, he sort of passed out, and then days later, he disappeared. This servant, George Damon's servant, found this key and the, a set of bloody clothes. The servant turned in the key and the bloody clothes to George Damon and to George Damon's wife, Anne. 
George Damon headed because of the I, I, coverage I, I, in the newspaper. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Luke. Where were the were the uh, the clothes and the key found? On the property in in Cranford, oh, okay. in, in the barn. Okay. So the the maid found this this key and the set of bloody clothes, and she turns it into her employer, George Damon, and he because there's coverage everywhere. This is the biggest story in the country at the time. He had heard of this case, he says. And so what he decided to do is he decided to go to the East River Hotel where the murder occurred with a key, and he took along with him an employee, a man who's identified in the affidavit as a truck man. You know, presumably this is someone who drove George Damon's trucks. Uh, and so he took this person along, and they went to the bar, and they had a beer, and they had a couple cigars, and they waited for someone to bring down a set of the keys and leave them unattended. And then George Damon and his expertise, uh, having a background in metal foundry, uh, was able to see the tag printed, the number printed on the tag, and realize that this set of keys was the same as the one in his possession, he says in his affidavit. But... That's sort of a problematic story, if you think about it. Because, first of all, if George Damon is friends with New Jersey's governor and this person of prominence, uh, of mercantile prominence, as was described in that letter, then why did he take with him on this expedition the guy who drove his trucks? That person did, 10 years later, su submit an affidavit also. But as an employee, he was somewhat malleable. He owed George Damon for his income. Why didn't George Damon take with him somebody who also had a background in, in foundry, who could help him you know, identify those, those keys? But instead, he took this, this employee with him, this, this, this employee of him with him to, to do this. Also, George Damon, he says that the maid found this key, but when he turned in this key in 1901, 10 years later, that maid was long gone. No one, she didn't submit an affidavit. In fact, you would think that that maid who found this key and this bloody set of clothes that were significant to the biggest news story in the country, she probably would have told her friends, but apparently not. You know, she probably would be concerned that maybe that was bloody clothes uh, from this disappeared laborer, you know, were, were the, the results of violence to somebody they knew. But no, she stayed silent. She only told George Damon, according to George Damon. And because 10 years had passed, you couldn't interview her. There's, there's no testimony from even George Damon's wife. Could In the, fact, there's no... Sorry, please. Could the blood that was found on, uh, or the blood on the found clothes, could that be typed and or identified? It, it, that evidence does no longer exist. Uh, so the the whatever happened to the clothes, uh, presumably they're long gone. I George was thinking Damon's at story, the time, would the forensic of, science be up, and, up to typing or identifying the blood? Well, it was never submitted in 1891. Uh, so 10 years would have passed, so it, it would have decomposed or something like this. But even in 1891, you know, there was a lot of excitement about the sort of new blood analysis they could do, which also you could see how that would sway a jury, as DNA evidence does today. But it was, it was looking back, quite limited. So, for example, it was actually several years before they could even identify blood types. So, uh, like, you know, AO, positive, etc. So... The, the stuff that was presented in the courtroom as blood analysis evidence, I, as one of the defendant's experts testified, 
they couldn't even tell the difference between a human blood and that the blood of another mammal. Uh, so despite the sort of uh, excitement about it, it was quite limited. Uh, but it, as, it, as it happened, because George Damon decided to remain silent, the, the blood was not turned in. He didn't turn in the key, he didn't turn in the bloody clothes. He decided, him and his wife, locked the key in a safe, and as it says in his own affidavit, they forgot about it. And his reasoning of why he didn't go public with this is that he said he, there was a lot of attention about the case and he was concerned about the publicity for his business and for his family. He didn't want to have the publicity. And he said that even though he knew that Amir Ben Ali did not commit this murder, he seemed like a dangerous guy in George Damon's estimation and probably deserved to be locked up for some reason. I mean, th this is really hard for me to for me to believe or swallow uh it's it, it's a problem the the idea that george damon who had never met amir Ali, uh would uh, allow him to remain locked up when he knew that he didn't deserve to be that's uh that i mean i'm a writer i spend my time imagining things i spend my time putting myself in other people's shoes but it's it's a hard one um to, to think that that's is really uh, somebody's reasoning and they can live with it. In fairness, uh, I, I guess uh, George Damon did finally turn on this key a few years be, before he died. He was in declining health, uh, and in 1906 he, he passed away, and maybe this did weigh on his conscience. Um, you know, one, can, one can imagine that. Well, I, I, I've got to say, this is an absolutely fascinating story, and um, it's... Uh, courtesy of journalist Luke Jared Coomer, author of Takers Mad. It's uh, an audible drama. It's available in audiobook only. And um, Luke, I, I really appreciate you sharing uh, some of your discoveries and, and your time with me and the listeners this morning and in this uh, exciting new audiobook. Uh, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do, Tom. Thank you so much. It's, it's www.LukeJaredKumer.com. L-U-K-E-J-E-R-O-D-K-U-M-M-E-R.com. And the audiobook is available at Audible.com or Amazon. Well, Stickers I, I, Mad is the title. Yeah, I gotta say it's been uh, it's been really fun talking with you. I feel like we could talk about this all morning because it's such an interesting uh, case, and there are so many unanswered questions. But um, we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap it up there. But thanks again, and keep up the good work. Hey, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye bye. Once again, uh, Luke Jared Coomer. He's the author of Takers Mad, the new audible drama about a true story of crime and punishment that haunted New York's Gilded Age. And uh, with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. We're going to take a uh, short break. If you're listening to us at uh, WFOVLP, our voice is Radio 92.1 FM Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. And um, 
We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Uh, And don't forget, you can go to our website and uh, look up old interviews in uh, in the archives. And the show repeats online all day until the next new show. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car. Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey. Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flynn Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee. Health Plan. Flip Flip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. 
Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The story of Little Blue Riding Hood is true. Only the color has been changed to prevent an investigation. This is the woods. My name is Wednesday. I work out a homicide. Monday, February the 2nd, 10.22 a.m. Bumped into chicken licking. Told me the sky was falling. I booked her on the 6.14, turned her over to the psychiatrist. Then a call came in at a 5.03. When I was on my way to the 5.03, a 6.18 came in. I added up the 6.14, the 5.03, and the 6.18. Got 1,735. I handed in my paper to the chief. He corrected it. Gave me 100%. Patted me on the head. Told me I was a good cop. 11.45 a.m. It happened. I saw a little girl in a blue hood carrying a basket. I stopped to question her. Pardon me, ma'am. Could I talk to you for just a minute, ma'am? What about? Nothing much, ma'am. Just want to ask you a few questions, ma'am. What's your name? Little Blue Riding Hood. Where are you going, ma'am? Grandma's house. Yes, ma'am. What do you got in the basket? What are you trying to say? I got something in the basket I shouldn't have? No, ma'am. I didn't say that. Then why are you asking me all these questions for? Just routine, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. May I have a look in that basket, ma'am? Be my guest. Let's see. Sawed-off shotgun. Knife. Bludgeon. Box of dum-dum shells. Nothing suspicious here. All right, ma'am, we may want to talk to you later, so don't leave the woods. She skipped on down the path, but she didn't know I'd seen the concealed compartment in the basket. In it, what I'd suspected all along. Goodies. My job, get to Grandma's before she did. I took a shortcut through the strawberry patch. It was sort of a strawberry shortcut. I walked up to the cottage, rang the bell... Okay, Grandma, it's a raid. A raid? Why, I'm just a peace-loving old lady. You've got the wrong Grandma. Yes, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. Where'd you get that bump on your head? The sky fell on me this morning. I made a note to book her on the 614 and turned her over to the psychiatrist. I tied her up, put her in the closet, then I put on the Grandma's suit and got into bed. Come in, ma'am. Hello, Grandma. I got the loot. What are you doing in bed? I'm feeling poorly. But, Grandma, what big ears you have. All the better to get the facts. I just want to get the facts, ma'am. But, Grandma, what a big subpoena you have in your pocket. All the better to serve you with. But, Grandma, what a big 38 police special you have pointed at me. All the better to take you in. You're under arrest. You and your Grandma are operating a goodies ring. A cop. I should have known. Known what, ma'am? You look nothing like my Grandma. You forgot about the mustache. But I don't have a mustache. I know. But Grandma does. 
Well, I see you broke the goodies ring. How'd you get a lead on her, Joe? I just played a hunch, Frank. It was just a hunch. I played my luck. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. I was just lucky. I just played a hunch, Frank. What you're trying to say, Joe, is you just played a hunch. A lucky guess. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. You just played a hunch. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Joe? Yeah. I just played a hunch. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Another five minute mystery. An anniversary party is going on at the Brown household around the corner. One of the guests. George Taylor pauses while eating his dessert. Mmm, best lemon pie I've ever tasted, Mary. Oh, really? I wish my wife could do as well. Hey, it doesn't look as if Sam is appreciating it much, though. Goodness, dear, is my cooking that bad? Sam, your head is practically in your plate. I guess he's fallen asleep, everyone. I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's all right. Sam, Sam, sit up. Sam... (laughs) It's dreadful. I'd better shake him. Sam! Sam! Great guns, he's dead. How do you do? I'm Sergeant Barker of the Homicide Division, and this is one of my boys, Mike Grady. Where's the body? In the dining room at the table. We didn't move him. Hmm. Might as well be comfortable, everybody. This will take just a little while. Hmm. Dead, all right. Peaceful, too. Who's Mrs. Sam Brown? I am. You mind telling me what happened? I guess not. I'm so shocked. I don't know where to begin or what to tell you. Well, you might as well begin by telling me what you serve for dinner. Well, uh, we had soup first. Soup? What kind? Mushroom. And then roast chicken, green peas, mashed potatoes, and I served him coffee. But I don't see how this could mean anything. Just routine, Mrs. Brown. Did Mr. Brown eat everything? Yes, yes he did. He seemed to fall asleep over his coffee. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I tried to wake him, I found he's had a heart attack. Yeah, that'll be all for a few minutes, Mrs. Brown. We want to take a look around. Uh, notice anything about this table, Mike? No, Chief. Can't say as I do. Neither do I. Let's look in this kitchen. An orderly person, isn't she? Stacked dishes after each course. Yes, and here's the silverware over here. Ah, look. Look, Chief. One of these soup spoons has turned black. Black? Let me see it. The only spoon that's tarnished, too. Well, I was beginning to think it was a heart attack or the perfect murder. But this silver soup spoon is evidence enough. Uh, Mrs. Brown? Yes, Sergeant Barker? I'm sorry to interrupt your little party, Mrs. Brown, but I'm sure your guests won't mind. Uh, I don't understand. You will, Mrs. Brown, you will. You see, you're under arrest for the murder of your husband. Do you know why Sergeant Barker accused Mrs. Brown of murder? In a moment... We'll hear the solution. And now, back to our story. Sergeant Barker, how do you know it was homicide? Well, Mrs. Brown took careful pains to wash the soup pans and soup dishes before she served the rest of the meal. Yeah, I can see that. But she forgot one thing, to wash the silver soup spoons. What she didn't realize was that an hour later, by the end of dinner... The spoon her husband had used to eat his toadstool soup would give her away. She didn't know that toadstools make silver turn black. Mrs. Brown almost committed the perfect murder. 
but she forgot to wash one spoon. This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Sean Cantwell, Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. We hope you've enjoyed this mini-mystery.
to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bat soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes dear, yes dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized <laughs> as soon as I regained consciousness. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>